0: Well, hello, everyone. This is another episode of our History of Music podcast. This is our fifth episode. I am Harrison Zyberg. This is WCCS Podcast. And if my guest would like to introduce himself,
1: hi, I am Andrew Zyberg, Harrison's dad.
0: So, as longtime listeners of this podcast know, in the roughly 30 minute time span we have, I am going to give a short biography of a musician. I will try to learn as much as possible as I could in a week roughly and by watching documentaries or reading books or listening to different interviews or talks a person gave or about that person. So I just try as much as I can, as quickly as possible. And then I tell someone else and they ask me questions as I tell the life story. I promise to not purposely say something that isn't true, but I may say something that isn't true because again, I've crammed as much in as a week and I'm just saying it all out loud for the first time now. Do do you know who we're talking about, Dad? Tonight, Harry Chapin. We're talking about Harry Chapin. Now, what do you know about Harry Chapin?
1: That he was kind of a folk singer from the 70s. That one of his most famous songs, well, two of his most famous songs are Taxi and Cat in the Cradle. And that, unfortunately, he died in a car accident um, on Long Island. He was an accident with a truck. I think in the late 70s or the 80s. I'm not sure exactly what he, he died. But he was killed in a car accident.
0: All of that is true. But there's so much more to his life. And def- when I was researching him, he was... I don't want to say the most surprising because I knew a little bit about him. I knew his songs. For some earlier episodes, I knew nothing about the people. Um, But what I learned about him was definitely... I guess not the most. I guess I was surprised I had never heard about what he had done before because I knew him as an artist. So I already knew what he was. I already knew a little bit about him before I started. So I was surprised I didn't know. Here's some of the most famous things about him. We're going to start roughly from the beginning. So he is born in the during World War II in the 40s, and he's born with to a family of three other brothers. He's the second oldest. That's important because basically his brothers are going to factor in a lot into his music and to his life. But he starts off, he performs a little, he learns how to play the guitar, he comes from a very artistic family, and they, instead of promoting things like saying, oh, you need to make a lot of money to be successful, they said, money's not important. Whatever you choose to be, just be the best at it. Like, we measure success in how good you are at something and how much money you make off of it. So pretty much like... Think of any job or any activity or any hobby, dad. Just say it out loud. Baseball. Baseball. They didn't care if you made millions of dollars playing baseball, but if that was your chosen profession, they said you are going to be the best at being a baseball player. So sort of it was very – it was a family that encouraged the arts specifically. He comes from a family with writers and photographers. so It's a well-established artistic family that has ties to a lot of other artists. That's a big influence on him. So he starts up his life. He starts playing. But he's sort of aim- not aimless for a long time, just doesn't know what track to go down. I bet you, did you know that he was a college dropout? I did not. From two different colleges. Could you, I want you to guess which colleges.
1: Being from an island, I would think maybe the Hoster or C.W. Post. Just guess.
0: So he went to the Air Force Academy at first, and he dropped out very early because he said, this really isn't for me, like his... Uh, And I think they said they're like you're not gonna have a career outside of the Air Force, and then he went to Cornell, and he dropped out, and he dropped out like three times, like he would go and then drop out, and then go and drop out, and go and drop out. So it was like, it just wasn't his, wasn't his cup of tea. He liked learning, but he didn't like how Cornell was running. He didn't like that learning didn't seem practical. Like you learn all these like different theories and things about how they applied to the real world, and during this entire time. He's still playing music and he's still performing with his brothers who have a band. But his brothers sort of like different types of music than him, and it just doesn't fit. At one point, they're known as the Chapin Brothers. They, three of them, record an album. At one point, they sort of kick Harry out of the band because his sound just didn't match the same. But he always records them and always plays with them. Uh, it's his brother, his three brothers. James who's the oldest who doesn't play with. He is not a musician. And Steve and Tom and Steve and Tom are like sort of always with him musically. Right. But he,
1: I knew Tom mm
0: -hmm.
1: was in the band and I didn't know who how the ages were. Yeah. Tom was in the band.
0: So Tom is known as like one of the, okay, really he does, uh, he does the show make a wish, which I guess was a like New York based show. And Harry writes a lot of songs for him. Like the song circle or all my life's a circle is because Tom was like, I need a song for this. And then Harry's like, okay, I'll call you at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. And then he called him and gave him the song because he had to like, he wrote it in the night of that morning. But so Tom has this outside career with playing with him and his own music. Steve produces a lot and is a more than classically trained musician, but they're all music family. Even though they're not necessarily in the same band, they're together. But before all that happens, before he becomes a musician full time, he's actually a movie editor and sort of director and documentary filmmaker. He was actually, one of his films, which was about uh, old boxers, gets nominated for an Oscar for Best Documentary. I didn't know that. Didn't? That's, I also didn't know that either. But so he, he's successful in it, but it's not really his passion. He sort of walks away from that multiple times. It goes back because he knows he's good at it. Pretty much everything is like he wants to be a writer. And he's not, the books I read sort of so like he didn't feel like creatively fulfilled because he just wasn't, like, getting enough out of it. Even though he was obviously successful, he was nominated for an Oscar. And he was working as a lot. I think I read somewhere it said he would try to work for six months so he didn't have to work the next six so he could focus on his writing. So he keeps writing, he keeps writing, he keeps not being successful. Eventually, he finds – he writes enough material – and he feels comfortable. He says, I'm going to open for my brothers. I believe it's the club, The Bitter End, which is in Greenwich Village in New York City. He's a New York City-based person. Around that time or before, he meets his wife-to-be, Sandy. Do you know about her at all?
1: I know she was married before and had a daughter. And he becomes the stepfather.
0: Okay. So, actually, he meets her when she's married. Okay. And they meet because he was giving her guitar lessons.
1: Which is a song he ends up writing um, about that. I know that Mm -hmm. because I just don't what you just told me. There's a song about that that he writes, and it's on his uh, live album, which is one of my favorite albums.
0: Mm -hmm. Greatest stories ever told live. So but he meets his wife-to-be. She's still married at the time. She has three kids. Eventually, they get together, and she's – Creative in her own right. She writes, she actually writes the lyrics to Cats in the Cradle. She writes lyrics to other songs through her poems. She gets, I forget what she gets a master's in, but she pursues her master's at Columbia. She ends up teaching. She has this whole different career while still also being a support system for her.
1: But they know they had three kids.
0: So she had three kids beforehand and then they had two kids after. But he's starting to get his life together and he says, I'm going to perform. And he goes up and it doesn't really work. And he says, Oh, I need a band. So he sort of just like puts an ad out in the paper and asks around. And that's how he gets his first band. Um, I sadly only remember the name John Wallace. Big, big John, John Wallace. Big John Wallace, uh, who we sort of knew before. There are other members of the band. So he's, he has like a rotating cellist. Because not it's an odd, having a cellist in a band is not very common. What, 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 but he song, had A
1: couple of songs have cellos. Most of, his, cellos.
0: most of his songs had cello in them. He was a full-time member of the band. And I think it was, I was inspired because on in the album Sweet Baby James by James Taylor, there's a cellist who said we should have that. And there's Big John Wallace who plays bass. And he is a big man with shaggy hair and glasses. And he has a five octave range. And he
1: sings on Mr. Tanner.
0: He does. But yeah, five octave range is like amazing. Like that's not something that's common. But he has that and they perform and they start performing as a group. And it's not like they were not a very. I think from what I read, so they weren't, like, great musicians when they started, but they just worked together as a group. So they start, and eventually they start getting heard about, and then they get a record contract at Electra Records. They get, like, the, the craziest contract of all time. Because it's, like, millions of dollars, free studio time, 10-album deal. It's, like, this huge of. Con- it's this huge contract. And basically, they're in this bidding war with another one. And it goes up and they just keep driving the price up. So it's like, I think, like $80,000 signing bonus. This was in like the 60s, or the early 70s. So he gets this huge, huge contract. And basically, it's all about he gets that contract because he didn't have his own recordings. He had d- demos, but it's all about his live performance. And his live performances are sort of like what he's known for. Whereas on his records, it says, not like he loses something, but everyone says you're better at live.
1: Right. Which is
0: also, like you said before, one of your favorite albums was the live recording of the album. Or I like his singing, live
1: stuff better than his album stuff.
0: Which is sort of like the general consensus. And that's a big part about him. Which is also with a lot of like folk singers is their audience interactions.
1: Stories you tell.
0: Mm-hmm. Like Pete Seeger, who was a friend of his and we covered in our first episode. He keeps popping up, which is sort of surprising. It's interesting when... The names of people that have covered before pop up again. Like Paul Robson did in a book I read, and Pete Seeger, who was covered in the first two episodes. But they're known for having this great audience interaction and engaging them. And Harry Chapin is in line with that. He's a great at audience interaction. Um, okay, so he signs with lecture, he gets his record deals, and he starts releasing a lot of these albums with songs like Taxi, Mr. Tanner. Circle, Cats in the Cradle, sequel, which is the sequel to Taxi,
1: which I like better than Taxi.
0: And a lot of what's interesting about these songs is not. There's a few things. It's the subject matter because he doesn't really shy away from any issues. He like talks about a lot of things that would either be like, taboo to talk about at the time, or just like subjects that would be considered weird to write a song about, like a aging radio DJ, or a troubled relationship between father and son, or uh, he talks about a a sniper, a, it's a song called sniper and it's based off of the Texas.
1: Oh, the guy. And it's
0: like, these are songs that most people would not write about, especially the songs that he writes because these songs are story songs. They're all like seven minutes long. There are a lot of talk singing In it, it there's like a lot going on, but there he's known for his storytelling capabilities. And a lot of people think that comes from the fact that he had a lot of years doing documentaries. So he already had the storytelling capability in him that he knew this and he just transferred it to over to his songs. Well, it's just something in him that he'd been honing as a filmmaker and now could do it as a musician. So he's known for having these, in conscious, it can be like 15 minute versions of songs. And it's not like it's, He's stretching out a three-minute song. He's like he's stretching out an eight-minute song to double that. Like, he has a very long song. And at that time, he started at least during the 70s, that was not common. Protest songs at that point had sort of stopped being things. Songs about things had sort of stopped being things for mainstream artists to do. So he was sort of like one of the only few people still doing songs about topics or issues that he really cared about.
1: Kind of like Springsteen before Springsteen was Springsteen.
0: Sort of, but even I think if you listen to the first three albums of Bruce Springsteen, again, not I haven't critically looked at them, but like, uh, what's this? Um, Blinded by the Light is sort of just like a fun song that I don't really think is about like a deeper issue. But like, Harry Chapin, his first album, Heads and Tails, was just about like, let's talk about loneliness, and a lot of his songs are about like loneliness and lost love from misconnections. connections. He was like, he was not shying away from songs, like eight minute songs about things in a time when social issues and rock had sort of separated. Like he right. was making songs that were more common in like the sixties and during the civil rights movement or by the seventies. And this is a major part of how he views the world. Right. Is that sort of an apathy had set into the music industry that songs that people weren't putting their money where their mouth was that, the idealism from the 60s had dropped down, and he sort of felt a little bit like he was like one of the only new guys on the scene that was trying to make songs about an issue or to advocate for something or to shine a light on something. Now, earlier, earlier on in his life, he had taken a trip to an African country. I forget. I won't say the exact country because I forget. it. Was, I think it was in Ethiopia, but I could be wrong. And he sees starvation firsthand on a lot of children. Right. And that is something that affects him throughout his entire life because he finally starts making money. He finally starts being famous. He realizes, I think he says himself, I'm paraphrasing, but in the 60s, I ran my mouth like everyone else did. Now I have money. So I thought I need to actually do something. And he decides, you know what I should do? I should end world hunger.
1: Right. He did some kind of fun. He does have that. And then I remember one of the albums, he was like say so I'll go out and buy my t-shirt and the money's going to go towards or towards, towards Hunger so he had like a... Um,
0: oh, that. you have no idea. He set up he had Hunger Thons. He would don't uh, he was doing 200 shows a year which is like unprecedented and half of them would he be taking no money because he would be going to different charities. He starts Why which is a which is now known as Why Hunger which is an anti-hunger organization. He sets up a organization on Long Island to fight hunger there. He, in his lifetime, personally raised like $6 million for charity. And the thing is, he performed two, roughly 2,000 concerts in a 10-year musical career, while also recording 10 albums and writing a book of poetry and being constantly on different um, talk shows. He was on Johnny Carson 13 times. I think he was the only person to be on and then ask back to come back the next night. So he was on for two nights in a row. He was like, he was traveling a ton and he was doing a lot of concerts for free to donate to different causes. And it wasn't just hunger, even though it's a big part of his life, but it was different like arts on Long Island. Basically, if someone asked him, hey, can you do this benefit concert for us? He'd say, sure. When do you need me? And he'd just show up and do it. Like Michael Moore, the documentary filmmaker, before he was that he in a newspaper. And Harry Chapin just showed up to help him get money to play a concert so the newspaper could continue. So, like, wherever he was needed, he was there, which is awesome, but it put strain on both his home life and his band life because he would sort of say, that The band will be there, or I'll be there. But he wouldn't always tell the band that. He wouldn't discuss these things with the band. So, it would sometimes be like he would be in the middle of recording an album and he'd have to leave for a few days to do benefit concerts. So, that's why basically a lot of the cellists in the band cycled out a bunch because they just couldn't work under those conditions. They just didn't like having, they didn't like what was happening. They didn't like the stress of that or they weren't being told. So it is sort of like the downside to his activism is that he would perform 200 nights a year, which is great for his own career for getting his music out there and for the cause he's helping. But that means 200 plus nights of the year he was away from home, which is where songs like cats in the cradle come from, or a lot of the songs dedicated to his family. We'll talk about his love for them, but also the hardships of him being away all the time. So that's where a lot of things, I guess the that's the downside of the activism he's doing and all the great work. But again, the plus side is that he personally raised six million dollars, and he also got a presidential commission on hunger during the Carter administration started, and that's like not a thing. Like he basically said, "I'm going to do this." And then he bugged enough politicians to do it, including the president of the United States, which is President Carter at the time Who was much more, I think, open to liberal causes than Reagan, who was coming a few years after. But so that's not like that's not a thing that a lot of people do. They don't just decide. And I think a six month time period, there should be a commission on hunger and then get that done. So he's able to do this sort of by the, his own personality and force of will. I think it was. he was known basically if he got you in a room and he was talking to you, he would eventually sort of just like, I don't know if badge was the right word, but he would get you to agree with him. And if you did, he'd say, great, now what are you going to do next? He talked a lot about, which I think is, talking, is very relevant now, is that he would say things like, we can't just think an event is going to fix the problem. We can't think holding a benefit concert is going to fix the problem. He was talking about When some people were talking about fixing the symptoms, he was talking about fixing the root causes, which you hear a lot about now when it's like systemic problems. So he was sort of ahead of his time, at least for musicians at that point. He was not only, and also behind his time, because again, protest songs or songs about things were like the 60s and it sort of moved away in the 70s. So he was like 10 years behind on music, but we're still talking about things that he was talking about, of saying like, we can feed someone, like we can feed someone for a day, but they're going to be hungry the next day. So we talking about fixing systemic problems, while also, again, supporting a ton of arts organizations on Long Island. Did you know any of this about him?
1: I knew he he was supporting um, organizations for hunger. I didn't know how big it was, how Mm -hmm. big he got it. I know they're still going on today because of him.
0: Mm-hmm. he was yeah a lot of we a lot of his family is really still taken up the cause and again he's sort of like he was known as just being i think people a lot of people said it. we think if he was a politician he would have ended up being president because he was just that like driven and i don't know if ambi- i guess it's ambition but it's ambition for other people and he says a lot like i want to know that my life mattered i want to know that my life affected other people and i want to be able to help people and make a difference that's paraphrasing, but sort of his sentiment. What's interesting, though, is that, well, one, th- I think you notice a lot, at least for my research, is that the documentaries you watch, well, there's actually a new documentary about him about but I didn't have access to, but I would try to find as much as I could online and the things that we'll cover. He was, one thing not really covered was his, too much in the documentaries that I saw, the specials. Was his involvement in theater. He so basically after his only number one song was Cats in the Cradle, and after that hit number one, instead of touring or like using that to get more money, he said, "I'm going to do a Broadway show." And he does, and everyone sort of hates it because it's sort of just thrown together and it's all of his songs, but there's no plot. It's just sort of like, see what we can do. And I said, the best part is when he would just come out at the end and sing normally, and it'd be like a concert because no one really got it. And that sort of happens a few times. He stages his own play with his music, set in a futuristic radio station, and like a bunch of... like It's like a young like, Ben Vereen's in it, and Beverly D'Angelo, D'Angelo and Pat Benatar, and someone else is in it. I forget who. Like, before they were really famous, those right. four people, three people, four people. And that gets panned as well. And like, But he keeps writing for the theater, and eventually... I forget the, the name of that is in the book you have right now. But he writes music to a uh, a play, which was if Jesus was born in 1980 and in the South. I forget the name. And like it premieres in Boston and does poorly, but then it becomes incredibly successful like the next year. But sadly, he, he didn't live to see this success because he, had, he gets in a car accident and then sadly passes away. No one knows the reasons for that car accident. They don't know they know it wasn't a heart attack that caused it. They don't know what happened, but he was a very bad, I know he was
1: a very bad driver and has lost his license.
0: He had uh, also lost his license, a but
1: couple of times.
0: that is sadly, that's like the end to his, right. the sad and tragic end to his life right. because he had so much that he was still doing. Like the amount of, was it 1980, 1981, he lived like, to be, he only lived to be 39 years old. Right. But in that time again, he and only 10 of those years as a musician, at least a recording artist. At that time he had like ten ish albums and performed two thousand concerts and raised six million dollars for charity. He did again people said this, he did more in those ten years than a lot of people doing their own lifetimes. And he wasn't just again, he also was writing songs for his brother and producing their own work, and he was writing for Broadway, and he wrote a book of poetry, and he was still trying to get home and be with his family because he had five kids.
1: And his brother's, at least Tom is still
0: alive. Tom is still alive. I think Steve and James both passed away, I believe. But yeah, and he was, his brother apparently was very, has his own career outside of him. Because so he has this, pretty much this amazing career that spans a lot of different areas. And that he was able to combine his activism with his musicianship incredibly well. Sometimes, sadly, again, a lot of the documentaries I didn't cover this so far. But to the detriment of his home life, he was doing so much for other people that sometimes he became the cats in the cradle dad because he wouldn't be with his family all that much. And it talks a lot about him having to find what that balance was and how he, and how he learned how to be the Harry Chapin that people needed him to be and that activist, but also being the father and family man he needed to be. So that was a constant struggle he was going through and would have to deal with throughout his entire career. An interesting thing is, the critics did not like him. Like, every single album he had was just mixed reviews. Rolling Stone hated him. They said, he was like, oh, he's too sentimental. The songs are too long. He hammers home the point. Which, again, is sort of like all true, but they just hated that. They hated, they basically hated his style, even if it was like, I don't know, it'd sort of be like, if you really it's not like they were like allergic to it, but it'd be like someone allergic to a peanut butter sandwich cannot really judge the quality of it. And it's sort of just like, they just hated his music so much. They, it sort of seemed like at some points they weren't judging the quality of it. They were saying, so they like couldn't get past either the music they didn't like or how long the songs was or the message he was trying to get across or like, how he was trying to. Because again, an eight minute song is not everyone's cup of tea about a social issue right. or about an old radio DJ. Not everyone's going to like that. So the critics were very divided on him for a long time. So sort of see, like, again, some of the songs that his fans just love, critics panned or just hated. Um, and that was sort of a constant throughout his performing career. Which it didn't, it didn't tank him. He still had this amazing deal with Elektra. And then he switched again to different recording studios uh, later in his career when weird recording things happened as they sort of tend to, I guess, do in the music industry. But he still had this, even like in critical, um, I can't say critical criticism, that doesn't make any sense, uh, negative reviews. He was still able to have this great career. And again, that was mostly based off of his 2000 live performances that he was well known for. And that was like, his, that was where he was at his best for his musicianship. And it's just his performance. And you can see videos of it online where it is much more of, I guess, a connection where instead of a recording that may not come across because it's a recording and it's not live. But you can know also why his greatest stories ever told live album is sort of known as his, one of his best, if not his right. best.
1: Right.
0: So that is in a very small nutshell, the story of Harry Chapin. Do you have any questions before we wrap up? do any of
1: his kids do they do do they sing? Do they, uh, I think a bunch
0: of his kids. I know um Tom um, Chapin's kids have a band. I think his own kids, I don't know if they're still on Long Island, but I know they're still very active in the activism he was doing, at least, and then I don't know what other field, but yeah, a lot of them do sing. I don't know if they've I don't know if that's like their lives or like they' what they're totally in for for their chosen profession, but I think at least, one of them or a few of them did. I
1: mean, I know his daughter. I don't know if it's his stepdaughter. Or
0: his... He has, I think he has a, real a biological daughter and a biological son, and then three stepkids. I
1: know one of the daughters did sing. I don't know which one it was, how.
0: So, mm-hmm. so you definitely like the musical gene, the artistic gene or traitor I guess cultivated part of their personality, just becoming part of the Chapin family. Chapin or Chapin, I was But that passed on to the next generation. It's definitely, it's an interesting, I did not know much about him before I started this. I knew Cats in the Cradle and the song Flowers Are Red.
1: Yeah, you like that song? I do like that
0: song, which is about school conformity. Um, That's sort of all I knew about him. And then I learned a lot of uh, what I've liked about the artists. I've done at least most of the artists. Um, I guess maybe excluding Billie Holiday. Were activists, Well, I guess Billie Holiday was an activist in a different way because just her position in music at that time, being right. a 1930s, 1950s singer and a black woman performing and being as big as she was, she, I guess, like unintentional activist or just her presence was changing things in the music industry or was a statement, even if she didn't like run charity events. But with everyone else I've covered, sort of unintentionally, I've learned about how big their life and activism was, which has made me appreciate them as people more, even if I'm not haven't listened to all of their music or all that much. And it's definitely added to their stories. So I'm, I'm not gonna say I'm nervous going forward, but I think I may be disappointed when I finally cover someone who was not really an activist. But yeah. So we have we're gonna wrap up next week. I'm going to be covering, I think, I won't say who I think the guest host will be, but the singer Lydia Mendoza. Not a singer, as of right now, recording, I know a ton about, but I'm sure by next Wednesday, not this Wednesday, next Wednesday, when this finally comes out, because we're recording before Wednesday, I don't know quite a lot about. So I want to thank you for being here, Dad.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Once again, this is a history of music, WCCS podcast production. I am Harrison Zadberg, and thank you for listening.